listening to First Church Charlotte. I have prepared a handout, a study guide supplement for you tonight. Uh, if you have not received one, uh, the ushers need to start handing those out right now. Uh, it is a supplemental study guide that you can take home with you. So while we are getting started, our ushers are going to start handing those out. Uh, feel free to draft some other people uh, to help you hand them out briskly because I do want to move. I do want to move along in a, a very brisk manner. Uh, it's a pleasure, a joy, and an honor to teach the Word of the Lord to all of you. And we are starting a new series tonight entitled First Church. And the goal of this series is to connect us as much as is possible, connect us to that first century church and how they, how they grew in knowledge, how they grew in understanding, and how they worshiped, how they celebrated, what their culture of worship was, what their style of fellowship was. We want to be as authentic as possible. Can I have a big amen? amen. Can I have a bigger amen? amen. Thank you very much. I, I'm not interested in a form of godliness. Every, every religion has a, a, a style to it, a form. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have power within that. And I very much want a, a faith that is filled with the power of God. Not what I can do, not what you can do, but what God can do through us. And so I am going to start as a way of getting you on the same page with me. I'm going to start by giving you a quick overview of what is happening in the first century AD and kind of remind you of what the church feels like, what the church looks like, what the people are fighting over, uh, what the people believe, and how that is all being brought together. And that's going to be how I begin. Then I'm going to next try to show you how the world, the non-believing world, viewed the church and what they were touched by, influenced by, and changed by. And finally, I am going to try to show you how we as a church are going to try to touch that same spiritual goal and theme and be authentic in the same manner that that first century church was. So there was a man named Jesus who changed everything. He changed everything. Religion wasn't new, but Jesus revolutionized religion. Faith wasn't new. The whole world was filled with faith, but it was of a certain type, and it had its underpinnings of a certain philosophy, ideal worldview. Most of the world was what we would think of as idolatrous. That basically means they worshipped various forms of divinities, some of them more sophisticated than others. In a very wild area, a very wilderness area, you might find peoples who are still worshiping uh, crude gods, as some of the times people of the time would say, and just a representation of an animal. 
as you got into city centers, you would get to more of the ideals, divine ideals. This is kind of the ideas of Greek philosophers, and we would think of them, if we were in a college course, we would think of them as platonic ideals. And so God becomes more idea-based rather than simply object-based. But the high point, according to our faith, The high point, not simply according to our faith, but I believe by the story of human wisdom and even philosophy, was found in the monotheism of the Jewish people. Why? The reason why is because once you have a monotheistic religion, it forces ethics upon you because you can no longer work and manipulate one god against another. If you have many gods like the Greek empire had. You could make an appeal to one God if you were of a certain, let's say, personality excess. Let's say you had a temper problem. You didn't have to face the fact that you were wrong. You could just appeal, and this is just me doing this off the top of my head, so let's let's not dive too deeply into the philosophical underpinnings of this, but you could, you could say, make an offering to the, to the God of the, um, the Mars, who is a God of war. And so in your, your world, because you are now a, a worshiper or devotee of Mars, what is really wrong in your life and is destroying your relationship and damaging your family is now an attribute because you just switched gods to fit whatever you needed. If you were of a lusty, carnal uh, in inclination, you could find a fertility God and make that your devotion. There was really no need for you to look at yourself and see that I need to do better, live better, think better, try harder. You simply would find a deity that matched your personality excesses and ethics and rightness goes out the window. With monotheism, you can't play one God against another God. Can I have a big amen? There is a right and there is a wrong and God is always challenging you to rise above the weaknesses of your flesh, the lusts of your flesh, the pride of your heart, and be better, think better, get it right. Monotheism represents a revolution in human philosophy because it institutes absolute right and wrong. And so Jesus comes among this people. Jesus, this man is born among this people, these Jews of monotheistic faith. And he is, uh, he is born to a blue-collar family, and he very quickly begins to attract attention. Even at a young age, he has an understanding of Moses' law and covenant that astonishes the, the doctors of that law and the highest educated individuals of that law. And then after that moment of manifestation of who he was and what he knew, he goes back into a quiet blue-collar life where he awaits to an age of acceptance. Acceptance is important because uh, in Jewish culture, 30 was the age when you had something to contribute to adult society. Before that, you had nothing to contribute, and so he waited patiently. Uh, It's always hard for us to wait patiently, but let me speak very quickly to all of you who are waiting patiently and say this to you. If Jesus was willing to wait patiently, it behooves us 
to calm ourselves and say, thy will be done. Thy time, your time, Lord Jesus, not simply what I want. Jesus begins to walk and talk among these people. They are perhaps some of the most religiously zealous people in the world. In fact, the Pharisees among them and the zealots among them both hold to rightness by doctrine of zeal. The passage in the scripture where, uh, I won't get into this, I just want to touch it, where the uh, one of the young men zealous for rightness goes into another Jew who is in a moral, uh, uh, in adultery with a woman of a foreign tribe, and he uses a spear and kills them both. Uh, that was interpreted as by the zealots and by, to a lesser degree, the Essenes and by the Pharisees. In the same way we interpret, we are saved by faith. The same language. Abraham believed God and that was his faith was just, it became his justification in that he believed the Lord. They used the exact same language and interpretation to insert zeal. This isn't something I've always known. This is a result of my last three months of study. I'm going through a biography of Paul by one of the, uh, one of the scholars that I like to read. He brought this out, this doctrine of zeal. We are saved by zeal. We believed we're saved by zeal. By, by faith. They believed using the saint, just like we point to Abraham, they pointed to that story. And they said, even when you're wrong, the man committed murder. He was out of order. It was not his jurisdiction. Even when you're wrong, if you're zealous enough, then you're made righteous by this doctrine of zeal. And so, uh, that is their justification for everything they do. When they fight among themselves, when they kill one another, they, even if they're wrong, they're right because they meant zeal for the things of God. Now, Jesus comes into this religious environment and rejects this. He rejects their view of rightness. He rejects their d- debates. We'll talk about this more as we go into this, uh, this series. He rejects their philosophies, and he teaches in a way they had never heard a rabbi teach. Jesus did miracles, but no one said he did miracles unlike anybody. Jesus uh, did many things. No one. No- they said he spoke unlike anyone they had ever heard. And he spoke with this story and he spoke with simplicity. The Pharisees prided themselves on making complicated things simple. So they took divine law and edited it down into a set of rules that the people would then follow. And the people wouldn't need to understand the law. They would just follow the rules. That was not just the, the tradition of the Sadducees and, the, and the, the Pharisees. That was really how religion was done. But Jesus turns everything upside down and speaks in a manner that's shocking to them. He speaks as though they could understand God and they should apply their hearts to doing so. He teaches as though they should try to understand the kingdom of heaven. He teaches as though what they do is equal to why they did it. That's not shocking. Here's what's shocking. Why they did it was equal to what they did. And he raised the standard so high that the Pharisees' righteousness failed. No longer could you not commit adultery. Now you couldn't even think about committing adultery or you would be at risk of similar transgression. Jesus turned everything upside down. Uh, So that was very troublesome to the religious leaders and they killed him. 
So this was not an accident. This was from the beginning. It was ordained by God. God needed executioners, and he couldn't think of anything better than religious people. We don't want to be religious people like that. Amen. And so after his death around 30 AD, uh, people believe on him. Uh, he, he is there to be seen, and then he ascends. And people begin to preach this man, Jesus. They preach, and you can read, uh, there's a handful of sermons that we have. And they try to show that Jesus is not a rejection of the Jewish faith. He is the Messiah. Uh, Paul is not rejecting the Jewish faith. He's trying to show them that Jesus was the point of the Jewish faith. And so this is uh, difficult because, first of all, the whole world is being made aware of this man, Jesus. What, what did he believe? Well, they're not exactly sure. I want to pause here for a moment. Because if you don't, if I don't understand this, I miss what it feels like to be a first century Christian. How can I say they're not exactly sure? The first century is when all the sayings of Jesus are being collected. When the gospels are being written down. When people are remembering, do you remember what he said? And did not our hearts burn within us? Then they might, having heard the story, hear about one of the followers of Jesus who was coming through. I want to, I want to see, I want you to see this. I want to see this. Um, religion uh, for the idolater is really about manipulating gods for blessing. Religion for the for the Greeks or for the various nations, if it is not simply manipulating God, then it's a badge of identity. It's who I am. And this story of Jesus is not identity. There's no badge you wear. This story of Jesus is not manipulation. I want you to see how Christianity gave people a love story that so touched their hearts that they could say within themselves, I, I think I could, wow, I, I think I could believe some of that. You mean, you mean God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? They're not doing theology. They're being called to the man Christ Jesus. Can you believe on this man? Could you? Could it be that something, that everything changed with him? And they're saying, I, that, that's amazing. That, and this is the key for me anyway, my understanding, and this was a big deal to me. They fell in love with an idea of a God who would do that. Christianity was not identity for them. Christianity was not divine manipulation. Christian idea, I, I, Christianity was falling in love with the idea. Okay, so I, I hear people a lot of times say loudly, uh, the, you know, they don't believe in God. And I always ask them, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? I may not believe in him either. Yeah. 
Does that make sense, what I just said to you? People say, I don't believe in God. Okay, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I may not believe in that kind of God either. Some people get an idea of God where God is so petty, or God's so schizophrenic, or he's a, you know, hammer-handed, angry guy, or a uh, really passive-aggressive CPA accountant, you know, and he's always checking your boxes. Oh, did you look at the girl or not? Oh, you looked at it. You're lost. Oh, 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 you didn't look. Oh, you're saved. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? People get an idea of God. And this is what, this is what I think was shocking about the teaching of Jesus versus the rabbis versus the culture was that uh, he when, when, when he taught, you got a sense, not of how, you know, this, 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 God was looking to off you. God was looking to, ju- you got a sense that God was this eternal invitation, always asking you to think, always asking you to come closer, always standing at the door and knocking. And he's asking you questions. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul. Do you think, well, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not technically educated. I just have some, you know, uh, education at, at, at a synagogue. I, I'm not a professional. Uh, but, but he's inviting me to think. What do you mean think? I'm not supposed to think. I'm supposed to obey. Jesus is changing the faith of the Jews from simple obedience so God doesn't send us on another exile. Don't have time on that, but that, to give them that tonight. But that is well established. The attitude after the, uh, the exile and the return, all the motivation of the Pharisees, all these good hearts, they're trying to get it right so they won't be judged again. Tons of information on that among Jewish history. And, and the Lord's saying, wait a minute, you're, you're missing something here. Come unto me, all who you all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will. This Christian movement was started before people had a Bible. It was started before they had a gospel. It was started simply on an idea, and its power was this. That's the kind of God that makes more sense to me than any gold-plated crocodile. If there if there's a God, that's the kind of God that 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 makes sense to me. And they're here in the story of Jesus, a God who loves so much, not that he kills you, but that he dies for you. A God who fulfills the the sacrifice that Adam made in the garden when he knows his wife has sinned. And he decides, I'm going to partake too because I would rather die than live without you. It's a love story. And God says, I love you sinners so much that I would rather die than live without you. And so he came to his own and his own received him not. But they crucified him. And he said, Father, forgive them. I They know not what they do. And Christianity starts for decades, not on the basis of doctrine. Doctrine is important. We can see that. But they didn't have it when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, study to sow yourself approved. A whole generation of believers has lived and died. That's 40 years after the death of Jesus. Watch this. Now, if this doesn't blow your mind, then I I just did my best, and we'll have to have Brother Foster come back. (laughs) 
Why do you think Jesus said, I am the way? Not a way. I am the way. Why do you think Jesus said, I am the truth? Not a truth. Not I will lead you to truth. Not I will teach you truth. I am the truth. Why would he say, I am the life? Because Christianity is powerful. Because it is built upon a love story that goes like this. God loves you. And he is going to move heaven and earth to be rejoined with you. And a whole generation of people who don't have the book of Hebrews... (laughs) They don't have the letters to the church at Corinth. They don't have Galatians. They don't have all the things we take for granted. They don't have John. They don't have Revelations. They say, I I can believe in a God like that. Hear me today. That is power. So in the first century church, there's transition. As the apostles begin to die, new leaders have to arise. And there is this deep, deep expectation that the Lord will return soon. We know that from early writings. They are living as though the Lord will return right now. We should live as though the Lord would return soon. Yes, we're going to occupy till he comes, but in our heart, we're saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Churches usually start in synagogues. They are then ousted and excommunicated from the synagogue, and they start first with the persecution of the Jews. The Jews themselves had uh, some rights to discipline their own community. That is why Paul was five times beaten with a cat of nine tails for 39 stripes. The Roman empire would not beat him because he was a Roman citizen. But the Jews, he was a Jew, used their authority to beat him five times for the sake of the name of Jesus. And so after the small group of believers within the synagogue was expelled from, and there is excommunication is a very big part of the Jewish faith. Um, It is stronger even than in Christian circles, their excommunication is. Um, the The church then begins to gain influence in the community after they have been expelled. First, they're persecuted by the Jews. Then, as time passed, they will be persecuted by uh, the Romans and the powers, the other powers that, that be. Christianity begins to emerge in this first century from its Jewish identity. Remember, religion is a big identity signal. It's one way we signal identity. Just like if you are a Carolina fan, you have a signal to your identity. Um, in the same manner, uh, religion Religion is an identity, but in the New Testament church, it begins to lose its Jewish identity, and the first crisis that comes is whether or not the church is a Jewish faith or whether or not it's a universal faith. And so uh, you you see the church begin to become a universal faith, not just a, a Jewish, what they would call a Jewish cult within the Jewish faith. It is a universal faith. This causes all of the tremendous problems in the first century church because people who see Christianity as identity, they cannot let it lose its identity, else they think it has no value. And so uh, these people would rather destroy it than let it become something they thought it should not be. Uh, The key transition happens in 70 AD. 
uh, at the destruction of uh, the temple. Uh, there is a Jewish revolt against Roman, Roman authority. The Christians do not take part in that revolt. They have the prophecies and they relocate to Pella in Jordan. Uh, and so Jews in a town called Jemnia in 90 AD, they confirm the Hebrew canon. This is the Old Testament, what we think of as the Old Testament. It is in their keeping as the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Persecutions begin to test the church. There's always been persecution from the Jewish authorities. Now, uh, starting in 64 AD, there is the persecution kicked off by Nero, and he uses uh, Christians to horrible, horrible effect. And so I want to direct your attention very quickly to the supplement I gave you. These are from the, uh, these are from history. These are not passages of scripture. These are from history, but they show us, I've given you kind of an interview to what's happening, uh, introduction to what's happening in the church. Uh, They are gathering the writings of Paul. They are gathering the Hebrew Bible. They are gathering the few copies of the book of Hebrews that we have. And they are gathering, the books are very expensive. Most Christian communities would have no scripture at all. Some of the larger ones would have pieces if they had had something directed to them or they could afford a copy to be made. Um, The first real scripture any conclave of Christianity has that they could get because there was a fair number of copies would have been the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So you see what's happening in the Christian world. Even so, they are turning the world upside down. Where Paul and Peter are, you have doctrine, you have understanding, you have preaching, you have book of Acts experience. This is why the book of Acts, and we'll talk more about this next week, is so important because although the idea of Christianity is touching the whole world, there are lights of understanding that are being switched on in communities. And they'll have a few people here uh, that are able to be exposed to, say, James or Peter or John or Luke or any of these individuals, uh, you see those scriptures. Uh, We have those scriptures and we read those scriptures and we think that's what most of Christendom at the time was. But I want you to understand, this is not an opinion of mine, this is very much well established. Most Christian communities did not have access to the Apostle Paul. They had this idea. They had, they they were moved by the story. But our doctrine does not come from the idea. Our doctrine comes from the preaching of the Apostle Paul and uh, Apostle Peter and James, the author of the book of Hebrews. You get the idea. So let me move quickly along. How is the world viewing them? These are some of the first passages. This is 150 AD, Justin Martyr, one of the first and perhaps, uh, I would say probably the most famous uh, martyr of the early church, uh, uh, is 
writing a defense to the Roman Senate or other uh, imp, uh, leaders and governors. He says this, this, since you are called pious and philosophers, guardians of justice and lovers of learning, pay attention and listen to my address. If you are indeed followers of learning, it will be clear. We have not come to flatter you by this writing nor please you by our address, but to beg that you pass judgment after an accurate and searching investigation. As for us, no evil can be done to us unless we are convicted as evildoers or proved to be wicked men. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. What an astonishing statement of faith for people who aren't just talking tough. They're putting their lives on the line. Nowadays, we're guilty of talking tough, and we never put our lives on the line. This is the real deal right here. To avoid anyone thinking that this is an unreasonable and reckless declaration, we demand that the charges against the Christians be investigated. We're not saying let us off. We're saying we're innocent. Investigate us. If these are substantiated, we should be justly punished. But if no one can convict us of anything, true reason forbids you to wrong blameless men because of evil rumors. If you did so, you would be harming yourselves as governing 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 affairs by emotions rather than by intelligence. It is our task, therefore, to provide to all an opportunity of inspecting our life and teachings. It is your business when you hear us to be good judges, as reason demands, if when you have learned the truth, you do not do what is just, you will be without excuse before God. That is an astonishing statement because at this time in the empire, the whole world is commanded to worship Caesar. And he writes to Caesar and says, you can kill us, but if you do, you're going to answer before God. So this is known as the epistle to Diogenes. Uh, this is a little bit earlier, AD 130. With, this isn't something that we would look at to try to try to do theology from. We have a canon, an approved canon for that. We're not doing theology. We're trying to see how the world around the Christians saw them and observed them. We're doing more history than anything else. This is, uh, to me, very, very, uh, one of the most powerful writings of uh, the the, the first centuries of the church. Let's start reading. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. In other words, they're just regular people. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves to be the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Now, this next passage you're going to read is one of the most powerful passages you will find about the early church. They dwell in their own country, countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. The first social 
observance of Christians, not on a spiritual sense, because civil authorities don't care about what you believe. They want to know what your conduct is. Do, 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 you, do you see? The first thing that the civil authorities notice about their conduct is when they have a sick child, they do not expose it and let it die. They take care of their weak ones. That's the first mention in history of how they are doing something different. Uh, they obey the, uh, let's see, where are we at here? They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body are Christians in the world. Tertullian, a few years later, an early church father, uh, would write this passage, and I'm, 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 I'm running late, so let me move quickly along. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This strong exertion God delights in. We pray too for the emperors, for their ministers and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. We assemble to read our sacred writings, and with the sacred words, we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast, and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits. In the same place, also exhortations are made, rebukes, and sacred censures are administered, for with a great gravity is the work of judging carried on among us as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. And you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer, in the congregation, and in all sacred intercourse. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase but by established character. There is no buying or selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. In other words, you could buy buy a favors in many of the religions of the day. On the monthly day, if he likes, each push a small donation, but only if it is his pleasure, only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. 
These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. Not the church people, but the people who are saying this about us. They say about us, we love one another. They themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us, how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves would sooner kill. Speaking of those who criticize us, they would rather kill. We would rather die. Um, So I want to read in uh, closing here, I want to read an observance from a a sociologist. He's, He's not a believer. He's a sociologist, and he uh, did a wrote a rather long book that is highly cited called The Rise of Christianity, and it is one of the uh, strongest or best known, most cited books of the sociological effect of Christianity in the world. How did they affect the world they were in? Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homelessness, or excuse me, with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. You could make friends. You could have a place you could go. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. I want you to see the social pressures in that time are the same social pressures in this time. And that is why we can have a revival just like they had. I want you to see. Okay, so... uh, a society of haves and have-nots. On one hand, you have wealth and power. On the other hand, you have the homeless and the impoverished. Sounds like a modern city, doesn't it? Secondly, social isolation. Lots of newcomers, lots of strangers, no connection. The church provides a place of family, a place of connection. Three, lives marked by tragedy, widows and orphans. We still are in a society where lives are marked by tragedy. Ethnic and racial strife, we think that's a modern problem. It is a modern problem, but it was an ancient problem before it was a modern problem. And finally, tragedies and struggles. And so, all of the formula, all of the kindling for a Holy Ghost revival that was in that world exists in our world. We simply, as believers, have to show forth the love of God in the same manner they showed 
it forth. And so I put something here in your notes. I was afraid I would, I would forget it. I, I want you to understand in the uh, first church, the first century church, uh, there was a profound emphasis. And it goes like this. The first church were moral people, but their morality did not change the world. They were not the first moral people. They were God-centered, or what we would think of as holiness. How can a altar be holy? It's only used unto the Lord. When we are holy, we are holy unto the Lord. It's the same thing. We live our lives with God-centered values, with God-centered choices. Uh, We are holy. So they were God-centered, but their holiness did not change the world. They spoke with tongues, but tongues did not change the world. They prophesied, but their prophecy did not change the world. They operated with the word of wisdom and knowledge. They were people of great faith. They were generous with others. They died for what they believed. But none of these things individually change the world. However, charity never fails. Do you see what I just did? What I did is I took that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and I made a list of the things that are spoken of there. Uh, they <laughs> spoke with tongues. They prophesied. They had word of wisdom and knowledge. They had great faith. They were generous. They died. All of these things fell. But charity never fails. And so uh, my big takeaway for tonight and what I hope as a pastor and as a believer I hope to have as a foundation, a cornerstone in our church culture is a passion and a focus upon charity, loving people. So if what the city gets from us is that we're powerful, that's not enough. If what the city gets from us is that we are holy, that's not enough. If what the city gets from us is that we are righteous, that's not enough. If what the city gets from us is that we are wise or sincere or zealous or blessed or doctrinally sound, that is not enough. And yet all of those things are part of being Christians. Do you see? All of those things are part of being Christians. But that's not what changes a community. What the city must get is that First Church Charlotte loves them. So in conclusion, I want to read from this chapter, but I want to read it in the message. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creak, the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day. If I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So, no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more about others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep the score of the sins of others. Help us, Jesus. Doesn't revel when others grovel. 
takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God's always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps on going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday, but not yet. Praying in tongues will end someday, but not yet. Understanding will reach its limit someday, but not yet. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. God, help us to have that attitude. And when the complete arrives, our incompleteness will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. In other words, the day's coming. I'm going to see. I'm going to know. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting into a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, Somebody say, but for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Number one, trust steadily in God. Number two, hope unswervingly. Number three, love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. So, as a pastor, I want it to be said that I, as long as I knew Pastor Nate, now we have a brother Nate and a pastor Nate, so you have to keep it confused. Remember, Pastor Nate is the good singer. That's all you have to remember. Brother Nate, he's just a candle there. So, anyway. (laughs) I I hope you can say, I hope you can say, There was any number of things Brother Nate didn't get right. There was a handful of things. I wish you'd have done this. I wish you'd have done that. I wish you'd have straightened that person out because I didn't like them. And I wish you'd have showed mercy to my friend because I loved them. There's any number of faults and failings. But the one thing I hope you cannot, even my enemies can't say about me, is that I was chintzy with grace. And that I tried to shut the doors of heaven. I want to stink and love your guts. So, very quickly, what does this mean? And I'm done, kind of. What does this mean uh, for us now? When I end the first lesson of First Steps, I make seven commitments to all the guests who come. If you've been through First Steps, I see some of you here, you will have heard me do this. I want everyone here to know the seven commitments that as a pastor, I make to the visitors who come to this church. Number one, we will accept you as you are where you are. Now, if you have a problem with that, I'm going to drive you nuts as a pastor. You're just going to, you're just going to want to go home and cut yourself. But I believe that's fundamental to getting it right. We will accept you as you are where you are. Number two, we will nurture and encourage spiritual growth within your life. Every time you tag in at First Church, we're going to be speaking hope to you. We're going to be speaking faith to you. Your life may be seven sorts of mess, but we're going to be speaking hope to you. We're going to be speaking faith to you. We're going to encourage spiritual growth wherever you are. Number three, we will provide you a place to know and be known. It's not enough for you to know me. I'm going to provide a place for me to get to know you. You will never feel like family if you don't both know 
and are known. Number four, we will seek to help you develop your spiritual gifts. I want to get you involved as soon as possible. I want you to volunteer as soon as possible. I want you to help somebody else as soon as possible. I know your life's not perfect. Me and Nathan's lives aren't perfect either, and we're up on the platform, all cool as we can be. Do you see what I'm saying? I want to get you involved as soon as possible. Church, please give me permission to get people involved in ministries of this church. Please give me permission to have an open hand and work with people. We have volunteers over next door tonight who have never come into this church. We have a very high up executive over there volunteer tonight from a very large corporation in Charlotte. It's her second time to come. She just asked if she could come volunteer. Please don't go over to, uh, to Prosper You and look around and see who's lined up. If that is in your heart, you're going to the, uh, a museum and trying to find a rat. There's good things happening. Moving along. So we will help you develop your spiritual gifts. We're looking for ways to get you involved as soon as possible. There will be some areas that we look for the signs of maturity in biblical knowledge. I think that makes sense. But but, but in so many areas, we want you involved. Number five, we will strive to be a safe place. We will never hurt you. If there's any way to avoid fighting, we're going to avoid fighting. If there's any way for us to find something we get along about rather than disagreeing about, we're going to try to do it. We will be a safe place. We'll try to protect your kids. We'll try to help you in any way we can. Number six, we strive to help you carry your burdens through prayer and encouragement. We will strive. We know we can't make your decisions, but with prayer and encouragement, we will help you. And finally, number seven, as a church, we will be good stewards of your generosity. Whatever you give to this church of time or of treasure, whatever you give, we will be good stewards of it unto the Lord. Those are seven commitments that I as a pastor make to every new person who comes comes to this church. Because my goal is this. I, I'm in a different world than they were in. I'm, I have a different context than they had. Uh, but I can still learn from them. And the one thing that even their enemies said about them is, man, they, they're really nice to people. <laughs> they really help people. They, they, really, they really take care of the sick. The first hospitals were not founded by universities or nations. They were founded by Christians. Let's all stand. We want to love extravagantly. Let me say it again. We are not a perfect church. But we want to love extravagantly. If judging where other people are in their Christianity is something that makes you feel... You know, in in Jesus' day, the religious community felt most like God when they gave law. That's why when they they would bring the lady caught in adultery to Jesus and they would give law. They felt most righteous when they gave law. Jesus turned the whole thing upside down and he showed us God giving grace. So I don't want to be like them and feel most righteous when I give law. I want to be an administrator of grace. I want to feel closest to God when I give grace. You see, I want to love mercy. And so I, 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 I just want to say, I want to say, uh, I'm going to err on the side of loving people. I'm aware of more than you are. Whatever sins you know of in the church, I know more. Whatever problems you know of, I know more. I still want to love them. I still want to encourage them. I still want to include them. I'm done. Lift your hands with me right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for your 
great invitation to be a part of your work. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the great invitation to walk with you and to share this gospel and to show forth your your grand love and be workers of charity, oh God. Lord Jesus, we pray that your anointing would be on this church. I pray that as a pastor that your anointing would be on me. Lord, I'm praying that we would get this right. If we get it wrong, there's no opinion that can save us. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.